podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Boys and girls, welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. Today is Monday, the 13th of September. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network which allows you to go online, change your location, and access anything you're geo blocked from while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. A giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And also, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops on Etsy. Just download the Etsy app onto your phone. Search EPL Index, search Anfield Index. Loads of great merch there. Right, folks. We have had quite a surprising weekend, it must be said, in the Barclays Premier League. So, let's start with the first game of the weekend. Crystal Palace 3, Tottenham 0. Crystal Palace, who went into this game winless. Tottenham, who went into this game perfect. Three games, three wins, three goals scored, none and nine points. It was a fairly tight affair until Jaffa Tanganga found himself sent off on 58, a foolish tackle when he'd already been booked after an altercation with Wilf Zaha. Jumped into a tackle, tried to pull out of it, didn't quite manage it. It was a deserved second yellow, and off he went. And from there, Palace just really put the hammer down. It was very impressive to see how they operated. Zaha got the first with a penalty on 76 after quite a clear handball in the box by Ben Davies, who'd been brought on. Eric Dyer had to go off quite early in the game. Uh, then Joe Roden came on. No, maybe Joe Roden came on first. I can't really remember. But it was Ben Davies who handled the ball either way. Um, not the best penalty from Zaha, but did send the keeper the wrong way and, and scored. And it looked like it might just play out at 1-0. Palace were pushing forward and they were inventive. And Michael Alise had come on and was looking very lively. Odson Edward then appeared on the pitch. And things went real bad for Tottenham real quick. Uh, Edouard scoring two goals in a seven-minute spell to really announce his arrival in the Premier League and give Patrick Vieira his first win as Crystal Palace manager. A very, very impressive victory. Launches them up to 11th in the league. They'll be very, very happy to have gotten five points from the first four games, considering it was for Palace, a difficult run of games. You know, West Ham, top six last season. Really good team with ambitions of Europe again this season. Chelsea, one of the favourites for the league title. Tottenham, Champions League ambitions. 
And Brentford is the other one. Brentford nearly promoted second game up, having just beaten Arsenal. That's a really tough run that Palace have had. And it doesn't get much easier because they've got Liverpool next weekend. But they'll be very, very happy, I think, with five points in the first four games. Vieira, it's good to get the first win early. It continues the hoodoo that he holds over Tottenham. Only lost to them once as a player in all the time he played in the Premier League. So he does seem to have a little bit of a hold over them. I was quite disappointed with Nuno. I thought tactically he got it wrong, especially with his midfield set up to begin the game. Going with Winks, Skip and Heusberg just seemed like overkill. There didn't seem to be any logical reason to play that midfield. Now, I know he doesn't have all his options available at the moment because Lo Celso uh, was suspended, or not suspended, he's quarantining, um, having gone to South America. But, I mean, Tangoy Endembele sitting on your bench. You've ignored him all season. He's fresh. You could have brought him on. You should have started him, but you could have brought him on. There was no reason to be a martyr about this. You could very easily have moved Delhi back into a number eight position as well and brought in Brian Hill. You could have changed the shape. The lack of Young Min Son was massive. It's it's very clear how important a player he is to them. But Spurs will look to bounce back quickly. That's a bad result, but I think they'll get back on track fairly quick. They just need to get Christian Romero on the pitch. He's going to solve big problems in that defence. Tanganga had played well at right back. Right side centre-back in a two, not so much. I think he could be a centre-back in a three. I don't think he can be a centre-back in a two. Not at this point in his career. Uh, up next then, Watford nil, Wolves two. I thought this was quite a good game. I think what myself and Guy pointed out on Friday, which was that Watford would look to break in on their right-hand side, the left side of the Wolves' defence, turned out to be true. That's where Watford attacked. They had a couple of opportunities. Jose Sam made a couple of half-decent saves. But it was clear that Daniel Bachman was the more involved goalkeeper, the busier of the two. He'd made a couple of good saves before Sirialto put through his own net on 74, and then Huang with a scruffy goal on 83 to kind of wrap the victory up. This was Wolves continuing their attacking form, continuing their adventurous style of play. I thought we saw more from Trinkiao in this game than we had in the previous ones. I thought Adama looked lively, a couple of good crosses, one of them for Trinkiao, um, but Bachman was, was alive to it. Raul Jimenez should have scored with a free header early on, earlier on, but I, I still think he's getting used to heading a ball, wearing that protective guard thing that he has, and he's still a little bit hesitant. But all in all, signs for Wolves were very promising. Uh, Semedo also should have scored early, earlier on. He had a good chance, but he looked fairly lively as well. And um, that midfield with Neves and Moutinho just keeps keeps motoring along. They keep outplaying teams. They're, they've got very good balance in that pair. Um, Neves likes to play that bit deeper. Moutinho operates that bit further forward. You'd like them to have a bit more dynamism in midfield, but all things considered, a really good performance for Wolves, really good for Bruno Lager to get his first victory of the weekend, 
And again, it shows how tight everything is at the minute. Wolves launch up to 13th in the league, and they'll be very, very happy uh, with that performance, that victory. They get Brentford at home next. They look to build on that momentum, and then they go to Southampton. So Southampton, Newcastle, it's a little opportunity for Wolves to put some, put some victories together and get themselves in the mix for a top-half position as we move into the real meat of the season. Um, after that, then, we go to... I suppose we'll go Brentford-Brighton. Fairly even game. Nothing much between the two sides. Ivan Tony almost scored a worldie. Didn't quite get the the dip on it as he would have wanted. Brighton looked dangerous. They looked busy. I thought Cucurella had a, a solid enough debut. Maybe seemed a little bit alarmed at times at the, the aggression of the game. And Bomo had a... And Bomo? And Bomo had a good chance... In the second half, no, the first half rather, when he cut in on his left foot and tried to bend the ball into the far corner, but just couldn't get the purchase on it. All things considered, I thought a draw would have been a fair result, but Trossard pops up in the 90th minute and gets the winner, and Brighton go home very happy, whereas there's frustration for Brentford. I, I saw some Brentford fans calling for Thomas Frank to go, and I just thought it was the most deluded thing I'd seen yet this season. The guy got you promoted. You're four games in. You've got to win. You've got to draw already this season. Settle down. Settle down. What were your expectations for the season? Did you think you were coming up to win the game? Sorry, you've got to, you've got to win in two draws this season. This is your first defeat in the Premier League. There's going to be many more to come. So get used to them. And stop calling for your manager to get sacked after every one of them. Um, all things considered, I think Brighton were a bit fortunate. and Brentford will feel a little bit unlucky. But look, Brighton have started the season really well. That's three wins from four games. They have started the season scoring scoring some goals, which they didn't do last season, which is why they ended up in the bottom half. And yeah, you can say they've had an easy enough run. Burnley, Watford, and now Brentford, and obviously Everton was the game they, that they lost, but you can only beat who's put in front of you. And they're the type of teams that Brighton have to win against. Because if, if it comes to the end of the season and they are in a relegation scrap, then the points they've picked up against Brentford, Watford, Burnley, who'll all be in that same mix, they're going to prove very, very valuable. And it is something that they didn't do at times last season. They missed a lot of chances in a lot of games. I, I still remember the Crystal Palace home game. They should have been 5 or 6 nil up and somehow they managed to lose the game late on. They're not that team this year. They look a little bit more solid defensively. Shane Duffy started the season in really good form, fair play. And he's obviously he's a better defender than Ben White. Ben White's a much better footballer, but Duffy's a better defender. And he's really good in the air. And that's very important in the Premier League when you're playing that middle role. It means that Webster and Dunk play either side, so they've got quality defenders both sides of them. Whereas when White was there, Dunk was playing the middle role, Webster was on the left. Balance never seemed quite right, and he was an easy enough target, especially when Lamptey played left uh, right wing back, because Lamptey's not really a defender either. So there was large spaces for for White to defend. Now, when Lamptey comes back into this team, it's going to be interesting to see 
how they cope defensively because again he's he's just not really a defender he he's a winger who masquerades as a as a wing back uh lightning going forward great great to watch but defensively he's he's very suspect um but like i say promising for for brighton graham potter will be delighted with nine points at this point in the season and they'll they'll carry on they're going to be entertaining all season I, th- I still believe if they'd gotten a proper striker in the summer, they'd be a threat for top half. But, you know, they did make some good additions. Uh, Cucurella's a, a very good player. And Wepu, he'll he'll get into the team. It'll just take some time. It just needs to settle in. But once it's him and Basuma in midfield, they'll be in business. They go Lamptey, those two, and Cucurella. That's going to be really, really tough for teams to break down. Lots of energy. Lots of dynamism. The front three can put away the chances they'll get. They could be an outside shot for top half. They really could. Arsenal won. Norwich nil. The Gunners get their first win of the season. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in the 66th minute with probably the, the jammiest goal he'll ever score in his life. Um, Nicolas Pepe should have scored, didn't, and then somehow managed to jumbled the ball across to Aubameyang, who was stood about a yard and a half off the line and tapped home. We saw what I expect will be Arsenal's first-choice defence for the first time in this game, um, with Tomiyasu, White, Gabriel and Tierney. Arteta played Sambi Lakonga and Maitland-Niles sat in front of them. It was quite a defensive team for Norwich at home, but it worked. It wasn't a classic performance. It's not one you're going to tell people about in 10 years' time, but it worked. They got the victory, and that's all that really mattered for Arteta at this point because after the start that they'd had, he he has to be under pressure. He really has to be under pressure. I thought, for the most part, the defense looked pretty solid. I thought White's passing and his willingness to to step out with the ball and Tamiyasu's intelligence to just step in slightly. Gabriel step across, Tierney step in, and they go to a back three with White in front. I thought that was an interesting little wrinkle throughout the game, something we probably see more of as the season progresses. The midfield was quite defensive, and Maitland-Niles... Looked like a guy that hadn't played a lot of football recently. But he grew into the game and he looked lively. Uh, I thought they really clicked into gear once Smith Rowe came off the bench. He's just, he's such a good player. And Tomas Partey came off of the bench as well. Once those two are starting in this team, Arsenal are going to be, they're going to be promising. There'll still be holes in the team. They still need that partner for Tomas in in midfield. They need to figure out what way they're going to work. Saka, Odegaard and Smith-Rowe. Pepe will have to go to a bench roll at that point. Is Aubameyang the nine? Is it going to be Lacazette? They'll have question marks over them defensively. The goalkeeper's not very good, but they'll be promising. There's something to work with there. It's just a matter of whether or not Arteta has the bravery to follow through on his convictions because he's made some noise and he wants to play 4-3-3. 
But the question is, what is the midfield three? Because the defence now picks itself. Tomiyasu, White, Gabriel, Tierney. Assuming they're all fit, that's the back That's the back four. Up front, you'd imagine Saka takes one role. He's the only really nailed-on starter in the front three. Is he on the left? Is he on the right? If he's on the right, then maybe Aubameyang's on the left. If he's on the left, then maybe Pepe's on the right. If that's the, the pair, who's the front man? Is it Aubameyang? Is it Lacazette? But that's fine. They're all good players. And that'll all work, regardless of what way you put them all together. That works. You can bring in Martinelli. Martinelli could play on the right or the left with Saka on the other wing and one of Aubameyang and Lacazette to the middle. That's all fine. They're good questions to have. Midfield's a bit more. Is Emil Smith-Rowe number eight? Not really at the minute. He could be. Is Odegaard a number eight? Kind of. Kind of. But can you play those two in a midfield three together? Can you play them in a midfield three with Thomas Partey as the third one? I don't think so. I don't think so. So do you go with one of them plus Tomas plus somebody else? And then who's that third player? Is it Lakonga? He's not really ready. Is it Maitland-Niles? Maybe for energy. Can go box to box. Good defensively. Wins the ball back a fair bit. Is it Xhaka? Nobody wants to see that really. So they're difficult questions to answer in the midfield. But for Arsenal, the focus has to be on this win. Getting three points. Getting the season started. Their season hadn't really started. And if it had, it had started without them. They'd kind of forgotten what was going on around them. You know, we saw them get walloped by City. We saw Chelsea just mold them. Chelsea could have put four or five past them. They never got out of second gear. And obviously Brentford beat them on the opening night of the of, of the season and, and made them look very, very poor. But this is a good win for Arsenal. It's a good way to start their season off. Southampton, West Ham, nil-nil. Not a particularly good game of football. Nothing much happened. Mikel Antonio found himself sent off. There was, you know, plenty of graft. I thought Boria, the, the young loanee that Southampton have from Chelsea, looked the most likely player to score. Uh, he hit the post. And he had one cleared off the line by Declan Rice. Rice was just where he should be doing his job. Didn't think West Ham looked as good as they have in previous weeks. Maybe a little bit tired. A few lads back from inter- from international duties. A few new lads in the squad as well. We saw um, Vlasic come on off the bench. Zuma was on the bench. Kral was on the bench. We'll see more of them in the coming weeks. But all things considered, I, I think both teams would be happy enough with the point. Um, West Ham, I, I would imagine, will be happier given they were the away team. But for Saints, it's three draws already this season. So, you know, they're proving hard to beat. They've got fight in them. We've already seen them come back and snatch a late draw. They should have gotten a result against um God, who am I missing? They lost to Everton. 
yeah, they played really well in the first half against Everton away and maybe should have gotten a result. They probably should have been 2-0 up before Everton got going. They got a deserved draw against United. Everton, or Southampton rather, are, they're a feisty team and they're well coached. And we know they're well coached because Ralph Hasenhutl is a very good coach. We know they've got good players. The names are there for everybody to see. The doubt over them that I, that I have is what happens if someone gets injured? Because there's just a lack of depth in the squad. I thought Salisu looked good in this game. And I think it's important that he continue to develop at this kind of level because they need him to be a big player this year. With, with Vestergaard gone and with Leanko new to the league, questions over over Jack Stevens, they need him to be good. We know Bednarak will be good once he gets back into the team. But with a new left back in and Perot, they need that left side centre back to be consistent, to be reliable, and Salisu looks that so far this season. I thought Nathan Redmond, a little bit of criticism for him here, very, very selfish. Very, very selfish. Ruined probably their best opportunity in the game, made a mess of things, and then was really selfish when he got a second opportunity to make something happen. And to me, he just stands out as not quite being at the level of, of his teammates. I know they have other options to bring in for him. You know, we, we'll see Stuart Armstrong come into the team once he's back fully fit. I think that needs to happen quite soon, if I'm honest. I think it needs to happen quite soon. Che Adams will come back in as well. They've got Broya now. He'll be an option for them. But I do think Nathan Redmond, I think his time as a starter in the Premier League is done. Squad player and nothing more at this point. Um, We'll move on. Manchester City with the 1-0 victory over Leicester City. I don't think any Leicester fan can really debate that this was a, a deserved victory for the away team. They had 25 shots, 8 on target. Leicester had 6 shots, 1 on target. Now, Jamie Vardy did have the ball in the City net, but he was offside. Uh, he did very, very well. It's just a shame that he went on his run a little bit too early. Made Ruben Diaz look quite poor. I uh, was glad to see Americ Laporte keep his place. Glad to see him fit. I think you can make an argument that, you know, see Bard De Bruyne not starting and Sterling not starting. That was, you know, a strong City team. Um, don't really understand why Raheem Sterling is not starting. have to say, really don't understand why that is. I think if you bring Raheem Sterling in for Gabriel Jesus, that team just looks substantially better. And De Bruyne obviously not playing, but Bernardo Silva was brilliant. Bernardo Silva was the best player on the pitch in this game. His ability to create off the dribbler with a pass, his ability to just he just goes by players, and he's got that low center of gravity, but great balance. He can move both ways. He makes it very, very difficult for anyone to dispossess him. And there's just an ease at which he plays the game. I think when when David Silva was leaving, I think the assumption was Bernardo Silva's going to slot in there and City will just do the same thing. They won't need to change anything. 
because he can do it all. And he's got an incredible work rate as well. So in their old system, the 4-3-3 that flexed, where De Bruyne would move wide in the right, and Leroy Sané would drop from the left-sided forward role to the left-wing role. Silva played as a central midfielder almost in that, when they had possession. It was him and Fernandinho. And Bernardo Silva could have done that role easily. But Pep decided to go a little bit more conservative and bring in has been sensational. There's absolutely no way you could even consider leaving him out of the team. Ilke Gundogan's one of the most important players. He's become that over the last few seasons. Obviously, they've lost Sané, so the team no longer operates the same kind of way. And Bernardo has had to make do with, you know, a game on the left wing, a game on the right wing, a game as the left side centre midfielder, a game as the right side centre midfielder. But, you know, bit of a disappointing season last year. But bar that, he, he's been brilliant for City since joining. And in the summer when we heard, you know, of City would sell Bernardo, they'd sell Raheem Sterling. You do just have to wonder what are they thinking? Because these are two top class operators. Both are better footballers than Jack Grealish, who they paid a hundred million for and again was very disappointing in this game. Really do have to question whether City are, are thinking properly when you hear about Bernardo and Raheem Sterling potentially being pushed out the door. Or you see Raheem Sterling been left out for Gabriel Jesus in a wide forward role. It'd be different if Gabriel if it was we're talking about the number nine position. But Pep is paying, playing Ferran Torres as his number nine. He had Jesus as a right winger. Now, Jesus played well in this game, no question. But Raheem Sterling's just a much better player, and especially in that role, which is his best role. Um, for Leicester, look, this was always going to be a very difficult game. City are, I mean, they're the reigning league champions. They've won three of the last four titles. They're a great team. Um, Leicester have lost twice now this season, and they'll be disappointed with their with their form because they didn't play well against Wolves, and they were very lucky to get the victory. Um, they got hammered by West Ham. They weren't particularly good against Norwich and were quite fortunate to get out of there with the win. And they got comprehensively outplayed in this game at their own stadium. Now, City will comprehensively outplay most teams in the league. But Leicester are... Well, they've been the fifth best team in the league the last two seasons. And in reality, over the whole period of the last two years, they've easily been the third best team in the league. It's just that those last eight weeks or so of both seasons, they've fallen apart, whereas United and Chelsea, a little bit more experience higher calibre of players have kicked on in those last eight weeks. They've had their bad spells rather than an eight-week block. They'll have like a bad three weeks here, a bad three weeks there, and a bad two weeks there. But they'll get them out of the way earlier in the season. Come the end of the season, they'll find that little bit of form that's needed to secure that top four finish. Leicester haven't had that. Maybe it's a lack of leadership. Certainly, you'd ask questions over the manager. But Leicester need to need to hope that this is their bad run. Because if they fall too far behind this season, top four will be done and dusted. Liverpool, Chelsea, City and United 
won't drop a whole bunch of points this season. Not until late on. I think we'll see those four very close together until like March time. And then I think we'll see a little bit of separation. But Leicester can't afford to fall out of that mix if they want to be a Champions League contender. And thus far, they've lost two games from four played. The other four teams, United are yet to lose, Chelsea are yet to lose, Liverpool are yet to lose, City only lost once. They can't afford to allow a big gap to form. And as things stand, they're already four points behind United, Chelsea, Liverpool, and three points behind City. They don't want to let that gap grow much further because they still have to play Liverpool, United and Chelsea in the first half of the season. And they'll play them all again, obviously. But you can't afford to be six, eight points behind and then losing to United and going another three points behind them. Lose to Liverpool, three points behind them. Chelsea, another three points behind them. You can't afford to have that happen if you've got real top four ambitions because... There's a real possibility the top four is a closed shop this year with those four teams. They've certainly, in the case of Manchester United and Chelsea, they've spent enough to dictate they kind of have to be top four. Liverpool will be top four and City will be top four. Those are the two you can nail on. I think Chelsea you can nail on as well, and I think Chelsea are going to win the title. United are the one that might have issues, but they're largely down to the manager. Maybe the midfield. But if United get a big, big lead over Leicester, it's done. Leicester can just give up and forget about Champions League for the year. Uh, Speaking of Manchester United, Manchester United 4, Newcastle United 1. Quite a disappointing first half, all things considered. Very slow pace to the game. Newcastle kind of having the game go the way they wanted it to. But two minutes into injury time. Uh, Mason Greenwood with a shot that took a slight deflection off, I think, Jamal Lachelle's. Wrong foots the keeper a little bit, uh, Freddie Woodman, and he he just makes a dreadful blunder. Um, And the ball pops across and standing one yard out from the the goal line is one Cristiano Ronaldo who taps home and then does his big celebration. And we've seen this goal now replayed about 400 times. Bruno Fernandes would score the third, and we'll get to it, but I've seen less replays of Bruno's goal, which was world-class, than I have of Cristiano's goal, which was a one-yard tap-in after a goalkeeping error. Um, Newcastle would make it 1-1. Javi Manquillo on the counter-attack. It's really poor defending from United. Just really, really poor defending from Maguire, from Varane, and from Shaw. And Javi Manquillo with the goal. And Newcastle deserved it. There's no way to argue that they didn't. Newcastle matched United for an hour in this game. Now, they matched them in ways that they weren't going to beat them, but they were holding them out, and that's what Steve Bruce aims to do. Cristiano would make it two on 62 minutes. Uh, Luke Shaw somehow allowed to travel about 40 yards with the ball, nobody making a tackle. He slipped in Cristiano. One touch, got it out of his feet. A very weak left-footed effort that somehow went through Freddie Woodman's legs. Um, And he does his big celebration again. And fair play, two goals on his return. I saw some nonsense that it was 
you know, is this the best Premier League debut ever? Well, first of all, it's not his Premier League debut. And secondly, he didn't actually play all that well. He just scored two goals because of goalkeeping errors. Um, Bruno would make it three. And this, this goal highlights why assists are a dreadful, dreadful statistic. So Paul Pogba is now credited with seven assists in the season so far. His sixth assist, the first in this game, is a 10-yard square pass to Bruno, 30 yards from goal. Bruno takes a touch and then buries it in the top corner. Pogba's pass didn't assist that. Bruno's brilliance did. Pogba's pass played no real role in that at all. It's why assists aren't a good way to judge players. Uh, Pogba's second assist was better, but I'm not sure he meant the ball to go to Jesse Lingard. It was a nice bit of interplay on the edge of the Newcastle box, and Pogba played a little pass with the outside of his foot that I think was meant for Anthony Martial, but Martial dummied it. Lingard took it, jinked the defender, and put it home. A really good finish, and really nice to see Jesse Lingard get a goal. Maybe he is going to play a bigger role at United this season than I thought, although when Marcus Rashford comes back, I kind of feel like there'll be, and Cavani, there'll be even less opportunities for Lingard than there is right now. But, again, good to see him get his goal, carry on that form he had last season. He looked looked genuinely thrilled. You can tell he cares quite a lot about the club. He might even care more about the club than he does about his own career, which is admirable, if uh, if not a little bit misguided. Um, United didn't look great in this game until they got the second goal, and they kind of ran away with things. Newcastle were, well, they were Newcastle under Steve Bruce, you know, Try, 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 huff and puff, huff and puff, and then, you know, fall over in exhaustion. Um, I would question some of Steve Bruce's tactical decisions, but are there any tactical decisions? Does he really make any? The makeup of their coaching staff, apparently, is that Jones is in charge of the attack and Bruce is in charge of the defence. The defence has been an absolute disaster since he's been there. And even with going with a 5-4-1, they were still wide open. Uh, St. Maximum played up front in his own, with Jolington playing wide left, which didn't work at all. Uh, Willock and Longstaff gave a good account of themselves in midfield. I thought Almiron looked fairly dangerous. But... It was all a lot of huffing and puffing with no real outcome and no real focal point for an attack because Sir Maximum's super talented. Stop playing him as a false nine. I mean, I know he's not great, but you have Dwight Gale on the bench. He's at least a striker. Play him up front. Play Sir Maximum on the wing. You'll at least get some sort of functionality from Gale. This attack didn't work. Like Newcastle did counterattack quite well. That needs to be said. But defensively, they were just... I mean, dreadful doesn't even begin to cover what we saw from them in the second half, especially. Like, to allow Luke Shaw to run 40 yards unchecked is just disgraceful. Luke Shaw... And not not like he went down the left wing. He ran literally through the centre circle and up through the middle of the park, like he was heading to invade the homes of the Newcastle players. The only thing he was missing was a horse. 
it looked like he was coming to invade their homes. And all of them backed off and backed off and backed off. And yet somehow still managed to leave a massive open space for Cristiano to run into. Uh, just awful stuff from the tune. And Steve Bruce is in is in for a tough week. I mean, he was asked after the game, was it true that he went on holiday? He was pictured on a plane last weekend, I think it was. And he said he got quite annoyed with the journalist. I think he's from the, the, the Chronicle. Is it the Chronicle or the Gazette? One of them. I think it was the Chronicle. And he said something about, that's the type of thing we expect from your newspaper. Well, like, it's important that people know, Mr. Bruce, whether or not you did go on holiday. If you did and and you've nothing to hide about, why not just admit it? You were seen on a plane. If you weren't on holiday, then you can just say, no, I had to go somewhere for a personal reason. But he came out and said that Newcastle trained all last week. Well, what about the week before? Oh, I had six players away. So? You think United didn't have players away? You you think you have more international players than Manchester United? When Ralph Hasenhutl was asked about his slightly different shape, he went with a 4-1-4-1 in, in Southampton's game. He said they'd been working on it every day for the last two weeks. Made it clear. We were here all all through the break. Steve Bruce seemed to indicate his his boys took a week off. Or at least he did. That can't be acceptable. That can't be acceptable at all. Not when you're in the position that Newcastle are in. And look, it's I've seen Newcastle fans, you know, complaining and I I fully support them. I I I just don't think there's really a mechanism to replace Steve Bruce unless Mike Ashley gets the proper hump. And the only way Mike Ashley is going to get the hump is if Newcastle are at risk of going down. And four games in, they're not really at the risk of going down because it's too early in the season for that. Steve Bruce is perfect for Mike Ashley because he's a really unpopular manager and he distracts attention away from the really unpopular owner. And while you're criticising Steve Bruce, you're not criticising Mike Ashley. Like, Steve Bruce's win percentage at Newcastle is 30.1%. But that's not a surprise at all. This is the man who has the worst winning percentage of any manager in Premier League history who's had more than, I think it's 50 games in charge or something like that. But you can't be surprised that things are this bad. He he, This is what he is. He's the type of guy who wins about a third of his games. He'll draw another 20% of his games. And he scrapes survival. That's what he does. If Steve Bruce could have his perfect season, he would have 38 nil-nil draws. That is the ideal season for Steve Bruce because he knows 38 points will keep him up. And that's all he's there for. Steve Bruce isn't there to get Newcastle into Europe. He's not there to challenge for silverware. He's there to keep Newcastle in the Premier League. 
And the Premier League table doesn't make good reading for the tune at the minute, one point from four games. But they're only a point behind Leeds, two points behind Arsenal, Watford, Southampton and Wolves. You know, one win and they're, they could go up as, as high as 13th if things went right for them. Now, they've got Leeds next, then Watford, then Wolves. They can win two of those games, which is possible. Although two of them are away. Um, they've got Newcastle at home, then Watford and Wolves away. As I Leeds at home, Watford and Wolves away. They win two of them games. They're right out of that relegation conversation for now. If they lose all three, then it becomes then it becomes an issue for Bruce. Because Mike Ashley will then look at things and go, right, we're seven games in, we've got one point, and there's a gap forming between us and the rest. And that's where Steve Bruce could find himself in trouble. But to be totally honest, I don't think Steve Bruce would care if he got sacked at this point. Because this is a guy who's always dreamed of managing Newcastle. He dreamed of playing there. He's dreamed of managing there. You know, you have to remember, Steve Bruce is a Newcastle boy. He's from 16 miles from Newcastle. Grew up supporting the tune, wanting to play for them. Wasn't good enough as a young player, didn't get an opportunity. Went to Gillingham, worked his way up and ended up at United as captain and was very, very important in, in their early Premier League run. Became a very good player. Should should have won a lot of England caps. And if he had any sense in his head, he would have gone and played for Ireland because him and Paul McGrath would have been a really nice partnership. But it, it is what it is. Um, he always wanted to manage Newcastle. And after, what, 20 years the manager he'd been at the time? Sheffield United, Huddersfield, Wigan, Crystal Palace, Birmingham, Wigan again, Sunderland, Hull. Villa, Sheffield Wednesday. He walked out in Sheffield Wednesday to take the Newcastle job. Finally got the job he wanted. And it's turned into a nightmare because style of football, it's not what you want at Newcastle, not what the fans want. Newcastle want to be entertained. You know, you think back to the Keegan era. That's what Newcastle fans want to see. High-intensity, exciting football. End-to-end stuff. They'd rather draw 4-4 than win 1-0 a lot of weeks. And Bruce doesn't bring that. They want charisma. They want personality. Bruce doesn't bring that. He's been treated badly by the fans at times. Some of the abuse has gotten too personal. Same thing happened to him at Villa, though. Um, so you do wonder if it's, if it's his personality that sparks that off. But... He hasn't always been treated fairly. He's Look, he's done a pretty good job keeping them in the league. He deserves more backing from the owner than he's had. There's no question. This year's team is last year's team. Yes, they bought Joe Willock. They had him on loan last year anyway. They probably could have got Joe Willock on loan for this coming season and maybe spent that $20 million somewhere else. But... His his dream job has turned into a nightmare. From both sides. He doesn't have the backing of the man of the owner from a financial point of view, and the fans hate him. So he he might be happy enough to get sacked. 
get a good payoff, go somewhere else. Steve Bruce will always find work. There'll always be a championship team that'll want Steve Bruce. Nottingham Forest have made their worst start in, like a, I think, 50 years or something like that. Could be more, 70 years. They're most likely going to sack Chris Hewton quite soon. Nottingham Forest would take Steve Bruce. No doubt. No doubt at all that Forrest would take Bruce. If Bruce isn't blameless in any of this, like I said, he had major issues at Villa. He fell out with everybody at Hull. He walked out in Sheffield Wednesday. It's not the first time he's walked out in the team either. So there's a factor of it is obviously on him as a person, not just a manager. He does tend to have these difficult relationships with ownership and with fans. But I think if, if Mike Ashley fired him tomorrow, I think he'd be relieved more than upset. He might even be a little bit joyful. Where Newcastle would go from there, I don't know. Probably the cheap option and just promote Jones, who's never been Premier League manager before. Um, for United, you know, three wins out of four. Ollie would be happy. Cristiano gets his goal. Mark Goldbridge is a 40-year-old man making a fool of himself, screaming and shouting stupid noises on YouTube. United are tr- tremendously thrilled with where they are right now. Um, things will get more difficult. They've had a fairly easy start to the season. Uh, they get West Ham away next. Then they get Villa at home, Everton, then Leicester away. So their next four will be substantially tougher than their first four. Um, they've got young boys in the Champions League tomorrow night. That should be a decent game, actually. They're away, which is why it'll be a tougher game than if it was at home. If it was at home, you'd fancy them to win it comfortably enough. But away is always difficult. It's the early kickoff as well. So a bit of a short turnaround after the weekend. Uh, we had one game in the in the late slot. Uh, Chelsea 3, Aston Villa nil. Uh, Saul making his first start for Chelsea did not play well. Um, but there were little signs that the partnership with him and Kovacic could be something to stick with. Now, he came off at half time and you know, he'll get much better. He, he said himself it wasn't the debut he was hoping for. He didn't play well. He knew he wasn't playing well. Tuchel knew he wasn't playing well and, and was, you know, I think it's a quite a brave move to take a player off at half time like that. When, you've put him in the team. You know, if that was Jurgen Klopp, he would have left him out there because Klopp is just stubborn like that. But I I like the way Tuchel was good and reactive to it and made the change when he needed to make it. Um, Chelsea went one up after 15 minutes for Romelu Lukaku, of course. The guy at this point might just be, you know, might just be the biggest threat to all defences in the Premier League. Kovacic would make it 2 on 49. Actually, I mentioned the Pogba assist earlier on. Go and look at the first Lukaku goal and look at the Kovacic assist for that goal. And then look at the Pogba assist for the for the Bruno goal. And try and tell me if they're the same thing, if they should be counted equally. Because Kovacic's assist is one of the best you're going to see anywhere in Europe all season long. It reminded me of Kaka in the 05 Champions League final. Not as good, but similar enough. 
Uh, Kovacic made it two on 49 after some magnificent stuff from my pal Tyron Mings. Um, what it was he was doing, I don't know. A brainless pass. Kovacic in, beats the keeper comfortably. No Emmy Martinez, obviously, because he went off with his international team. Uh, so Villa looking a little bit lost at the back. A back three from Villa as well, which was interesting. Uh, I couldn't find any game they'd played a back three. Now, I didn't delve too deeply into their first season up, but I, I can't really remember them playing a back three. Since getting promoted, it seemed like a strange move by Dean Smith. Um, he went Konza, Tunzebi, and Mings, and Mings was just, he was just all over the place. Absolutely all over the place. The, this, the third goal is on him as well. He, now he came out and apologized for the second goal. He needs to apologize for the third goal as well, because he's miles out of position. Goes charging out for no reason at all. Gets caught out. Chelsea get behind him, and, and Big Rom makes a three, and it's very comfortable for Chelsea. Now, Villa did have moments in the game. Villa had 18 shots. They had six on target. They forced some decent saves at Amendi. Nothing you wouldn't expect them to make. But Villa did have their moments. But there just seemed like an inevitability about Chelsea winning this game. Even you know when, when Villa had spells where they were the better team, it just didn't really feel like they were going to score. You kind of felt like if there's another goal coming, it'll be Chelsea. And it, 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 you know, it eventually was Chelsea. Uh, 3-0, they'll be thrilled. I mean, 10 points. Already been to Anfield and gotten a point with 10 men for 45 minutes. They'll be very, very happy with how things are going so far under Thomas Tuchel. Second in the league on goal difference behind United. And, I mean, they've only conceded one goal. They've been great defensively. They're a big threat going forward now with Rom. They've got strong midfield options. They're they're going to be very hard to stop. They are going to be very, very hard to stop. Uh, Villa, probably safe to say the season hasn't really started the way they would have wanted. You know, the loss to Watford on the opening day. Uh, they probably had this one maybe penciled in as one that they kind of expected to lose. But, you know, the loss to Watford and the draw with Brentford are not results they would have imagined themselves getting. They obviously beat Newcastle. 2-0 uh, in their only win of the season so far. But I'd imagine they had three wins penciled in from the first four games, and then this one. Then they've Everton at home, then United away, and then Tottenham away. That's a tough run of three games. So they probably would have wanted more, but look, again, no Martinez for this one, no Buendia. They'll be back. Um, Villa will get better. They'll get Bailey and and Wendy in the team, hopefully not in a back three system because Mings is even worse in a back three than he is in a back two, which is amazing considering how bad he is in a back two, or back four, I should say, but a two-man centre-back pairing, as you know. Um, one game yesterday, Liverpool three, Leeds United nil uh, at Ellen Road. Liverpool absolutely dominant. 30 shots in the game to Leeds nine. Sadio Mane had 10 by himself. Should have had a hat-trick before he finally scored a late goal. Uh, Virgil van Dijk should have scored. Diogo Jota should have scored. Harvey Elliott should have scored. Thiago Alcantara had a goal disallowed. Uh, Mo Salah put Liverpool one up after really good work from Joel Matip and Trent Alexander-Arnold. 
Then Liam Cooper somehow avoided being sent off just before half time. He was booked for dragging back Mane before the first goal. And then just before half time, Diogo Jota ran, played a ball to the left to Mane, and Cooper catches him late and on the shin. Free kick is given. It's a blatant yellow card. There's no question it's a yellow card. He'd booked Fabinho for less. And somehow he didn't send him off. Cooper would get away with another one when he went in with a scissors tackle on Mane. Now, again, he won the ball in that one. Didn't didn't win the ball with the Jota one. But the Mane one was a dangerous scissor tackle. He should have been booked again. And the referee waved play on. And what was worse about it is he'd waved play on after what happened a few minutes before that. And I'll get to that. But Cooper should have been sent off twice. That's just a fact of the matter. Uh, Liverpool would go two up early in the second half. Fabinho, after Mane was denied a quite clear penalty, ball went out for a corner. Alexander-Arnold with the cross, Van Dijk with the cushion header down, and Fabinho at the second time of asking made it made it two. And then we saw Harvey Elliott get his ankle dislocated and whatever else has happened to it. Um, Liverpool were attacking. Struik was racing back, having been brought on because Lorente had had to go off injured. And he won the ball, but he did it with one of those scissors tackles because he was trying to win it and go the opposite direction. And his back leg came through Elliot and just absolutely obliterated his ankle. Now, Struik was sent off and Elliot had to go to the hospital and have his ankle relocated and he'll have to have surgery in a couple of days. The referee waved play on. Now, I know there's this directive to let things flow, but this is nonsense. That was a blatant foul. VAR made the decision to send him off. They told the referee, you have to send him off here. Martin Tyler and Gary Neville tried to tell you it wasn't a red card. It, it blatantly was. It was, a, it was a clumsy tackle. It wasn't malicious. There was no bad intention. It was a very clumsy tackle. A little bit reckless. He endangered Harvey Elliott and he hurt him. And he was rightly sent off. But Neville and Tyler wanted to push a narrative that suited them. Because they've been cribbing and crying about the rules for the last few years. And the, the let it flow thing suits them. But look, Jurgen Klopp told people a month ago, this is going to happen. Players are going to get hurt. He said it after Burnley spent 90 minutes kicking Harvey Elliott up in the air. In a shameful display at Anfield. And it, it has happened now. And now Liverpool will be without this immense young player. Probably for the rest of the season. I think if they see him back any time before the end of the season. It will be a huge bonus for them. And it was such a blow because he was playing really well. And Liverpool had finally found a midfield balance that worked with him. Fabinho and Thiago. Fabinho and Thiago were incredible in this game. Just dominated from start to finish. Liverpool completely outplayed Leeds. This wasn't a close game. Mane made a three late on, and, and that didn't flatter Liverpool. Five or six wouldn't have flattered Liverpool. Like I said, Mane should have had a hat-trick. Van Dijk should have scored. Harvey should have scored. Jota should have scored. Five or six would have been a fair reflection of, of what the game was. Leeds fans w will whinge about the red card Liam Cooper should have been sent off and Liverpool should have had a penalty. So the referee wasn't on Liverpool's side. 
Paulson was dreadful towards Liverpool. A clear homer in how he refereed the game. Playing to the home gallery, he booked Cooper and then booked Fabinho for absolutely nothing just to even the scores because he got booed after booking Cooper. But Leeds fans, not all of them, because most of them are great, but a small portion of Leeds fans bought shame on the whole club with their behaviour, with chanting, always the victim as an 18-year-old is stretched off with his ankle hanging out of place, to chanting, 96 won't be missed, and you'll never walk again at Harvey Elliott. Uh, disgraceful. Utterly disgraceful. Now, most Leeds fans, most Leeds fans were very good. They applauded him. That was fine. But Leeds fans spent the day doing weird things, booing Salah and Trent and Fabinho and Van Dijk, Matip, Mane. Not so many boos for Jota or Harvey or Andy Robertson. Or Allison, no real boost for them, but but Trent, Matip, Virgil, Fabinho, Sal and Mane, they they got booed regularly, and I wonder why that is. Um, they sang at Trent, disparaging him, and comparing him to Kyle Walker. Now, why would you sing a song? that bigs up a player who's from Sheffield, came through the Academy of Sheffield United, who are one of your biggest rivals. That's a bizarre thing to do. Why would you not use the name of your own right back, who's also English, by the way? Why would you not sing you're just a inferior Luke Ayling rather than an, an, an inferior Kyle Walker? And they didn't use the word inferior, though. Um, it was just, it's a very weird thing for me for them to do. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, those are the nine games. We've got one tonight. Everton take on Burnley at Goodison at eight o'clock. Should be a good game or not. Uh, just depends on, I think, I think it depends on Everton. If Everton play well, it'll be a decent game. If Everton go to try and grind it out, it'll be a horror show. So it does just depend on how Everton choose to approach the game. Um, but I'll talk about it tomorrow. I'm not going to talk about it today. I'm going to leave it there for today. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Mr. Drinkle. Uh, if my sound was funky in any way, uh, I do apologize. Slightly different setup today, but you know, hopefully it was okay. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.